Hello, everybody. I am welcoming back Peter Michelson. Peter is a depth psychologist and therapist who has now written his ninth book. He and I had a great conversation last time. And when I realized he had a new book, I wanted to talk with him again. His new book is called Our Deadly Flaw, Healing the Inner Conflict that cripples us and subverts society. Our conversation last time was about overcoming self-doubt and self-sabotage. His new book goes in further about self-sabotage and how we use it to undermine ourselves and in so doing, we undermine society. It always stuns me when I see people undermining the very thing they claim they want to have. And when I find that I'm doing it myself, it's even more stunning. So here's a chance to, for us to learn what causes us to do that and how we can stop undermining ourselves and contribute better to society for the good of all. Hello, everybody. I am beyond delighted to bring to you Peter Michelson. Some of you may recall that I interviewed him before. We had a great discussion. You can find it in blog 73. And he talked about how to overcome self-doubt and self-sabotage. Okay, so Peter sent me his new book. I said, oh, wow, bring it on. Can we meet again? Can we do this again? Can we talk about your book? And he was gracious enough to say yes, and here we are. He's a depth psychologist, and he's currently still seeing uh, uh, patients. And we're going to talk about the premise of his book. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Jean. Pleased to be here again. I'm really delighted. So we're going to jump in on chapter six which is called Recognizing the Compulsion to Self-Punish. Right then and there, we got five hours worth of discussion. So that's impossible. So we're going to do the best we can in this little short hour. So talk to me. Tell us about the compulsion to self-punish and why we want to self-punish. Unconsciously, we are in conflict with our inner critic. And our inner critic is the agency within us, the drive or the force or the intelligence, even the primitive intelligence that is, has a punishing nature. It, it comes at us with all sorts of allegations, insinuations, accusations about our assumed uh, weaknesses or deficits or deficiencies. And it, it simply uh, has that energy about it, a self-aggressive kind of energy. And if we allow it, if we take it seriously, if we don't see it clearly enough, then we absorb punishment from it. Okay, hang on. Let me make sure I got this. Because we talked about this before. That little voice in our head that tells us something's wrong, we're bad, we shouldn't have done this, all of that. That's what you're calling the inner critic. Correct. Okay. Now, there are two voices. There's the inner critic, which is more uh, punishing. And then there's the inner passivity, which is a sort of a weaker, more of a whiny voice, a self-pitying voice within us. 
but we're talking now about the inner critic, which is which is more punishing. Okay, so the inner critic says, oh, you're so terrible, you're terrible. And then the inner passive voice says, oh, you're so right, I'm bad. It accepts a lot of the punishment. Sometimes it tries to defend itself. We try to defend ourselves. But almost, or at least a, lot, a large part of the time, we don't do well when we allow our inner passivity to represent us because it's just a weaker part of us. So we want to try and connect with our better self so that we know, understand when we're engaging with the inner critic that we, we can stand on a more solid ground and feel stronger against the inner critic and not allow its often irrational allegations to uh, penetrate. You know, we, we learn not to take it seriously sort of in, in one ear and out the other, as we become more watchful and more skillful at deflecting the, uh, the inner critic. Well, wait a minute. You seem to be implying that the inner critic is wrong about us. You said it, you called it irrational. If I've done something, or if I think I've done something, aren't I right? Aren't I, shouldn't I feel bad? Shouldn't I be punished? Not necessarily. Sometimes, of course, we, we, we make mistakes and do, do things badly. But the inner critic is relentless. It'll, it'll punish us day after day, week after week, month after month, even year after year, for something we did a long time ago that we might have forgiven ourselves for, that others might have forgiven us for. But the inner critic, if, we see, if it sees a weakness there, if it feels it can penetrate with, with punishment, it will continue to do so, even something that happened way in the past. So sometimes the inner critic is on the mark, you know, in terms of recognizing that we need to acknowledge some foolishness on our part, but oftentimes uh, it's simply punishing. It's just simply that it's nature to inflict that aggressive energy upon us. Okay, and so why do we accept that then why, well, we why, are we, why do we allow it to happen yeah we allow it because we don't see it clearly enough we don't we don't see exactly what's happening we we feel we feel the, the presence of the inner critic but we don't recognize it for what it is we just feel this rather vague sense of right and wrong did i do right did i do wrong and we get kind of confused typically about more precisely what is going on within us. And we also allow it to happen because there's a passive side of us that somehow or other enables the inner critic, sort of plays along with it. That's inner passivity. Sometimes it'll defend or try and defend us. But oftentimes, as I said, it's, kind of, it's, it's, it's weaker and it just doesn't do a good job of representing us and our integrity and our goodness. It allows the inner critic to make all sorts of allegations that often are just entirely unfair and sometimes are really quite cruel and, uh, and abusive. Okay, so when I first started teaching and for the longest time, somebody would say something to me and it would send me into a spiral. And it was like the sun just went up behind the clouds and I would sink and I could stay there for days, replaying that comment over and over and over again. 
wondering what I could have done differently. What you're saying is that was the inner critic at oper- that's at operating, right? Yes. <clears throat> the inner critic now picks up on what that person said and, re- and repeats it back to you as if it's a loop going on in your, in your mind. And uh, because it can get away there with, with releasing that self-aggressive drive. It's just a primitive energy. It's just a primitive part in our psyche. And, and so, you know, it just goes over and over, runs like that inside us. And uh, if we don't see it for what it is, we'll, we'll take it seriously. We'll believe that there's some validity in it. And we'll allow ourselves to uh, be on the receiving end of that sort of uh, mistreatment. Okay, so Peter, at some point, I recognized that that was ridiculous, that I could teach. I didn't need to do that, but I was lost as to how to stop the voice. Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that typically is what happens. And it's, again, it's simply because, you know, once you see the dynamics, the inner dynamics more clearly, then you realize you have the capacity. You start to understand how you have the capacity <clears throat> to shut down the voice. And it, that really comes from understanding the passive side more clearly. Okay. The passive side is kind of like an emptiness inside. It's like a no man's land that we haven't, that our consciousness hasn't penetrated. And so it operates on its own principles. And its own principles are kind of weak and they do not, they do not really represent us very well. And so if we don't see that, I couldn't defend myself. Yeah, so then you can't defend yourself, right? Because all you got is your inner passivity trying to do it, and it's not enough. Your consciousness has to come into the awareness there so that your consciousness goes in there, penetrates that area, and now you feel more connected to yourself, connected to your value, integrity, and goodness. And you and you are then refusing to allow the inner critic to say those kind of things or imply those kind of things because it has no business butting into your life. Okay, so you've used okay, so we've got the inner critic and the inner passivity over here, and you've contrasted with better self and consciousness. So say more about those two terms and how where we supposed to how are we supposed to find them somewhere in ourselves. Well, the better self is. Uh, it's kind of a, a belief in, in yourself. Okay. It's, it's, it's just, uh, you know, what we're capable of, what, what we aspire to. It's just being at our best instead of at our worst. We're, we're in, in conflict. We want, to be, we want to be strong consciously, but we have all these ways that we can be weak. So when we're strong, we really connect with that, and that becomes part of us, and that becomes more stable within us then we're connecting with our better self. If we're, not, if we're not connecting with that and we're more on the more weak or unstable side, then we're, we're connecting with a weaker sense of self. And so the whole idea is to become conscious, conscious of those dynamics, conscious, conscious of the, all the elements of that, so that we understand more how we can ourselves use, use consciousness as a way to become healthier, stronger, and wiser. 
Okay, so I'm trying to remember how I got myself out of that. I was I went into therapy during some part of that, of course. I, if whenever my life gets out of balance, I do a workshop, go into therapy, I do something. Mm-hmm. So I think that helped. But I'm trying to think of the mindset change. And I think the mindset change is what you're saying. I just decided I was better than that. Good. Well, that's you connecting with yourself. Yeah, that's, that's you. Sometimes you don't always have to see those inner dynamics. Sometimes just kind of intuitively or some other processes. You can connect with, with yourself and, and then you start to manifest your, your stronger qualities and your stronger aspects. So okay. that's probably what happened then for you. Okay, so here I'm looking at your book. You're say, I'm, I'm looking at this. Uh, you say here the inner critic's job is to criticize and the inner passivity's job is to defend. So explain this defense again, because if I was beating on myself, yeah, and accepting and, it, I wasn't really defending it until I got stronger. So well, you might on. have you might have been defending it. Sometimes the defense, the inner defensiveness is, you know, just sort of semi-conscious. So you might have been defending it, but uh, perhaps not as effectively as you could have. The problem there is that once you start defending, then you give credence to the inner critic. It's like you're starting, you're starting to take the inner critic seriously. So ideally, you don't want to defend. You just want to be able to look at the inner critic and say, you, you know, you're just nonsense. You're nonsense. Go away. I'm not going to listen to you. You're full of you know what. So uh, you learn not to. You learn not to take it seriously. Well, you say something similar to that in the politics chapter, which we're going to get to. But basically, the idea is uh, when you're protesting too much, you're acknowledging the credence of that power. Yes, yes. The more anxiously you defend yourself, the more you're you're giving credence to it. You can see it, say, when when a, a couple is arguing. And one, one partner is, is leveling all these accusations against the other partner. Right. And then the other partner gets all defensive and tries to make all these excuses and I'll give all these reasons why it happened the way it did and so on. So this person is now becoming all defensive. And this just gives credence to the person who's doing all the accusing because it'll, it'll just often make the accuser even more vigorous you know, with all the accusations, because the defensive person is really taking it seriously and getting in there and defending, defending, defending. And, and if, you, if you don't defend like that, it's kind of like dropping the rope in a tug of war. And then you can get more into the heart of the conflict between, say, the, you know, the, the couple. You can penetrate beyond that back and forth accusations and defending and get more deeper into the issues for the purpose of resolving them. Okay, so that back and forth defense, counter defense is basically what we have going on politically right now. Yes. Counter attack, counter defense. 
back and forth. And you're saying the way, I, I don't want to jump ahead to that chapter yet, but let's finish this one sentence. The way to counter that is to recognize that you're caught in that loop. Right, right. Yeah, the, the, more, the more conflicted you are within yourself, the more you'll see the world in terms of conflict. And the, more, and the more you'll get triggered by all the challenges of life, uh, you know, all the ways that you can disagree with people. You'll start to get triggered emotionally because conflict is how you experience the world. You start starting with yourself. And so you, it ex extends outward into the world and you, you'll, you'll just see the world the way you experience your own inner life in, in, you know, through conflict. If you're in harmony with yourself, and your emphasis is to look for harmony in the world and, and be a force for creating harmony in the world because that corresponds with how you feel on an inner level. I have friends, and I do, it's more than one, and I'm saying that in case any of my friends hear me and think I'm talking solely about them. I have friends who literally are fearful of what's going to happen in the world and with democracy and with the country and just live in a chronic state of fear. Are you suggesting that that comes from some kind of fear already in them that they're projecting onto the world? Yeah, everybody has some degree of inner fear. It comes out of childhood. Children can easily become scared and, and afraid of things. Uh, but certainly they feel, can easily feel helpless. So they, there's some rationale for why they would be fearful. But with this inner fear, we, we feel it on some level inside ourselves. We usually can't differentiate it. We can't identify exactly what it relates to within ourselves. And we tend to project it then outward into the world and see reasons, quote, reasons why we think we should be fearful reasons that seem to justify our sense of fearfulness. And unconsciously, we'll even go looking. We'll be determined to see things through a certain bias that appear to be reasons to be fearful, when in fact we're just looking to somehow rationalize our own inner fear. Okay, so I can just hear somebody saying, but we are facing a climate crisis. But uh, democracy really is under threat. But dictatorship really is taking hold. But people really are starving and income inequality is ridiculous. Well, that's, that's, that's all true. But there, in a sense, they're two separate things. There's that reality. And the more passive we are and the more conflicted we are, the less able we'll be able to deal with that reality effectively, you know, to, to bring reform. So the idea is, as, as we see that reality, we also want to be doing what we can to strengthen ourselves, you know, partly because we don't want to live in fear. And we don't want to, you know, be so fearful of what could be happening. Because we have a choice. We can, we can experience a lot more pleasure than displeasure the more conscious we become. We still have to deal with, with all these challenges, but it doesn't have to be agonizing. It doesn't have to be so frightful. 
they can be more heroic and you know, rise to the level of being more heroic, where we rise to the excitement of the challenge and uh, feel ourselves being at our best. Okay, so you're distinguishing, and I'm really feeling this because I hadn't, every time I talk to you or read your stuff, I, it's like I'm just bursting with new connections. There's the external reality, and then there's what I allow my perception of the external reality to do to me, mm-hmm. and whether I let that mess with my life and my sense of self. Those, that's the distinction you're making. Do I have that right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Out of, out of reality, uh, which to some degree, we can feel that we have a certain helplessness there. I mean, we want to be, sometimes we want to engage with it, of course, and try and be reformers. But at other times, it's easy to feel like we're helpless on that level. And so if we, if we experience it that way, that will become distressful for us because that'll, that'll accentuate that helpless feeling. And then we'll go deeper into a sense of weakness. So there's the other reality, but we bring our own psychological awareness uh, to it, you see, and, and, and thereby uh, we become more able either to uh, either to assimilate it, to live with it, or uh, to engage with it, ideally, to engage with it in such a way that we're part of the solution. Engage with it. What I tell, sometimes tell people, and I have one friend who literally is not doing really anything except reading the papers and watching the news and getting more and more afraid. What I say is go into action, volunteer somewhere, as you're saying, become part of the solution. I know for me, part of the reason I'm not down under is because I stay, I I feel like I'm contributing to the world. You're being at your best. You're doing your best. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you can't do better. So, yeah, that's where where your joy is going to come, even though all this horrible stuff is going on in the world. Okay, so I'm smiling. All these folks who say, but I can only do this a little bit, or I can only do that. You're saying do your best, and you can't do more. Right, right. And the, the more you, the more you, you know, deal with the inner, inner issues, the more you're looking inward as well as outward, the more, you're, the more you are doing your best. Because you can't necessarily just deal with the outer without doing some, you know, having some basis, some foundation within you from which to operate, you know, some solid place where you are more confident that you represent what is true and real, you know, that you'll be on the side of the angels rather than on the, on the other side. Okay. So I want to move on to something. Well, something, no, I want to add this. You said... If we can't feel our integrity, we can't protect or value it. Right. Right. That's connected to what we're just talking about, because part of doing your best is feeling integrity with yourself. Yeah, that's our better self. Once we get in touch with our better self, our best self, sometimes the true self, it's called or the authentic self. Yeah, that's that's that's, you know, that's just marvelous. It's just all fabulous. 
It's uh, wondrous, and it's all good. And that's integrity and uh, truth and honesty and all those wonderful things are all part of it. Okay, so let's go to this. When we are receptive, I'm reading, when we're receptive to punishment, we're more willing to inflict it on others. Hence, we treat others or regard them the way our inner critic Teach, treats us. So this cycle we were talking about, how one group is disdainful on another group, and that group then is reflects it back. And you're saying the inner critic is what's of both sides is what's running the show. The inner critic, yeah, the inner critic is is the main driver within us, but its enabler is inner passivity. So the relationship we have with ourselves is so much based on the degree to which we allow our inner critic to, you know, to be so influential in, in how we feel about ourselves and uh, the degree to which we allow inner, our inner passivity is an enabler of that and allows and doesn't represent us and allows all of that uh, negative aggressive energy to, to penetrate. So, if we can't, if that's happening within us, we can't feel our integrity because our inner critic is always tearing down our integrity. Yeah. It has no respect for our integrity. It just wants to tear us down. It's so primitive. It's just, a, it's just like a brute. And if you go back in history, human history, there was so much brutality. You know, there was, it, it, you know, it comes out of our history. We, be, we become more civilized and more refined. But we still have a, br a brutal part in us, a primitive part that ready, is ready to just be vicious against our integrity and tear it down. It's just, it's just, it's just such a narrow negative energy drive uh, that, can, that can be very vicious. And we project it onto others is what I'm also hearing you say. When we, when we feel that others are directing malice back at us, or have our own have our worst inter interest at heart, or somehow enemies oppose us, then very much so. We're we're seeing them according to how uh, we feel treated by our inner critic. So they become a stand-in sort of for the inner critic. We feel the malice coming from our inner critic, and so we're so prepared then to uh, you know see it see it coming at us from all directions. Oh, wow. So we allow others to beat ourselves up if we're used to beating our own selves up. Yeah. Yeah. Others to, you know, to, to oppose us and to, and then to feel like we have to dig in our heels and somehow resist them or oppose them or fight them. It just becomes a primitive way of uh, feeling that we, that we need, that we, you know, that we're compelled to relate to them. Okay, so I want to move into uh, something that's controversial. I'm not sure how I feel about it. You, you said uh, we're responsible of our, when we uncover our unconsciousness, un, our conscious willingness to experience self-punishment. Here I'm reading. 
A good example is the unconscious willingness of multitudes of people to live with the sense of being maliciously oppressed by others when their misery is mostly the result of inner conflicts, self-expression. So I listen to that and I think if I'm a person in Ukraine, for an example, and I'm watching my, the buildings being torn around me, is my misery really the result of my inner critic's self-oppression? Well, again, there, there are two different things. That is a, that is a real horrible oppression, being, being attacked by Russia, being invaded uh, and treated so badly. That obviously is very oppressive and unjust. So that, that, that would be in its own category of oppression and injustice. The other psychological area here is more about how in, in more normal circumstances, everyday life, people can feel oppressed you know, by things. Now, sort of the racism is another example of, of a legit, you know, real oppression, obviously. Uh, but the person who is on the receiving end of racism can still feel strong, feel strong within themselves, of course, and mitigate the effect of that oppression by becoming stronger and stronger within themselves and more and more capable of thriving because they become stronger within themselves. So there's yeah. the two, you know, there's two, two, two aspects of it. Yeah, I don't remember when racist comments stopped being feeling personal with me, but they did. They just, it just stopped. It became all about that other person's lack of awareness, lack of their ignorance, their own misery. Good. But at some yeah. point, it just became, I, I saw very clearly that, that comment, that insult, that rolling of the eyes, all of that had, was not about me. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you say that so clearly. I've told that to other people, and they said, well, you just don't know what it is. You just don't know what it's like. And I'm thinking, no, I don't think so. But, you know, that, that train has left the station. I, I grew up with oppression, and so... I don't need to recycle it. Good for you. <laughs> right. Well, you, you certainly see this thing. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful thing when people realize they have this inner power to, to, to uh, neutralize that incoming hostility and malice. You, 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 just, you, you, you just see where the other person is at. Yeah, because you're because you're more conscious. You're more conscious than them, and you you see where they're at, and you you know you say, well, I'll help them if I can, you know, to get more conscious. But in the meantime, I'm not going to be hurt by all that nonsense. Yeah, it's 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 like I, before they had power, they had the power to hurt me, and now they're just human beings trying to get along in the world desperately, and and rather badly trying to feel their own power you know, yes. for a sense of power yeah that's it exactly by using me to try yeah. to feel their own power right right well okay yes okay so 
new topic. You can tell I'm getting excited. Okay, new topic. Self-doubt arises when parents through inner passivity identify with their children. So we identify with people. You're saying here that it becomes hard to, I should begin at the beginning. I'm gonna start that whole part over. Parents and people in general often experience self-doubt over their right to be assertive or commanding. I've run that, I run into that a lot in doing leadership coaching. People are so eager to show that they're collaborative and accommodating and inclusive and all of these wonderful things that they get walked all over. The person is not respecting them. They're not respecting themselves. And so what you're saying is you're putting it here as part of the inner passivity that that's dominating. Is it, am I am I reading that right? Yeah, because of inner passivity, people can be uncomfortable with the feeling of power. It feels they they their own impression, their own sense of power, is that it's going to be something, perhaps that's inflicted upon them, in a way that's unkind or insensitive, and so they can associate power. They can identify with the person on the receiving end of power uh, and imagine that person is interpreting it as if it's somehow insensitive of them or unkind to them. And so they get, it's kind of a confusion. They don't see it clearly enough. And their own passivity blocks them from being more comfortable with feeling power and, and trusting themselves to use the power wisely, to use it benevolently and, uh, and to guide people, you know, to give, to teach people, to guide them, and to raise them up to, you know, to, to higher levels because they want, it's an effort to infuse them with power, make them, make them more comfortable with it. Exactly. I, I was saying this yesterday to someone who says, well, I don't want to be mean and sound like I'm being critical. I said, you are being critical. This, this is not right. This person needs to know better. They, they, then your job is to help them know better and do better. They mm-hmm. want to do better. And as yeah. you put it, raise them up. Don't let them sit around all misguided. I tell people when I do workshops, I tell people, I say, embarrass me publicly. If I mess up, embarrass me. Don't let me walk around. Everybody goes off and talks about me behind my back saying how I messed up on this. Embarrass me. Give me a chance to make it right. That's commendable of you. That means you're not afraid of uh, you know anything, cri- any any critical remarks, whatever. That you can handle it. That you'll deal with it. You won't get triggered by it. So that's that's inner strength. Yeah, better that than be parading around in, in <laughs> oblivious, but obliviousness and ignorance, not knowing that everybody's looking at me, saying, "Oh, she shouldn't have done that." And everybody knows it but me. Again, We have allowed the weak to be exploited, the rich to be exalted, and the earth to be blighted. Many on the left think capitalism is the problem. But this financial economic system is itself largely governed by the quality of our individual and collectively, 
collective maturity and wisdom. You got to translate that because a, a lot of people are not going to see any connection between who I am and an oppressive economic system. Well, yeah, um, it's a little tricky, you know, talking too much about it. You know, capitalism is, is a pretty complex affair. Um, you know, right now, I, mean, I, can, I can sense sometimes that capitalism is like a system that's driving us to the brink, you know, in terms of, in terms of environmental degradation. And uh, the way people latch on to it in, in a primitive, self-serving way uh, brings out the worst aspects of it. And, uh, you know, it means that it has no consciousness. It just operates according to the, the lowest common denominator, which is people striving selfishly to benefit from it. So in that, in that regard, it's certainly valid to be critical of it. But all we can do really is bring our own consciousness to it, you know, acquire what we can of that awareness and do every, everything we can to reform it. So the more we bring our wisdom and uh, awareness uh, to it, the more we're going to be interested in, in reforming it. And, you know, that's, that's, I think that's happening to some extent, for sure. Certainly any, any legislation that tackles climate change is, uh, is doing that. So, um, again, it all comes back to us. You know, how, how, how are we individually going to be part of the solution? So shouldn't we fight? Well, there's a different ways of fighting. I mean, you can, <clears throat> my way of fighting is just to penetrate deeper into all the aspects of it and, and see the psychology, you know, try and make the psychology of it all as apparent as possible. So that becomes useful or valuable knowledge that can be part of the fight. You know, that's, that's one way of fighting it. Um, so, <clears throat> but I think it's, <clears throat> we have to fight it with our intelligence you know, and, our, and, our, and our awareness. And, and certainly not, not violently, of course. Okay, are you using consciousness and awareness as synonyms? Pretty much so, yeah. Yeah, I generally mean higher consciousness. Just, you know, higher consciousness, just a consciousness that, that understands human nature more, more fully and more expansively and sees deeper into our weak spots, you know, in the areas where we need to grow. That, that's generally what I mean by growing consciousness. Okay, so... One of the things I often say that I, people don't understand change. They don't understand how people change. And they think by uh, walking up to a person and tell them how sorry they are, that's somehow supposed to motivate change. And what you're saying is that if we want to address these oppressive systems, 
we have to have an understanding of what's happening. The system itself operates on autopilot. We have to have some understanding of the psychology of the individuals who are motivating it, running it or whatever, or whom we're trying to address right. and have an understanding at a deeper level of them. Yeah. And if, if we bring that <clears throat> to the table you know, in, you know, in, play, in the ways that we can, then that's going to influence everyone. You know, that's going to in influence the people who want to see things work properly and things go well. It's, it's just, uh, you know, the process where, whereby we, we make change happen. We just bring that awareness and that insight uh, to, into the, into the forest and, and make it part of the discussion. Can you give an example of that? Well, let's take that. You, you talk in the book about the uh, pro-life versus uh, okay. pro-choice folks. Can you s apply what you're just saying, imagining in a discussion between those two groups, people, somebody, two people in each group, one person okay. in each group? Okay. Well, <clears throat> The first thing there is, is for the two people to try to feel like they have some respect for each other and that they appreciate, appreciate each other as fellow human beings trying to figure things out and, and feel like they can connect on that level, for starters. And that can be, you know, that can be challenging for some people. They can't necessarily easily do that. If they're too self-centered or they're too protecting their belief system because they're afraid if their belief system crumbles, they won't even know who they are. So the first thing to do is try to connect on that level and, and uh, appreciate each other that way. And then just gently start having a discussion. You know, this is how I see it. This is how, this is how you see it. And, uh, and then bring up all the all your different uh, arguments and ways of seeing it. So, what would be the point of that? Nobody's going to change. People say to me all the time, "Why should I talk with that person? They're not going to change their mind." Well, they might not change their mind, but they might they might open their heart a little bit. So there there can be a softer sense of each, you know, rather than a more conflicted or hard nosed sense of of each other. There can be, uh, it can soften the dialogue and start, and start to soften so that there's, there's more capacity than to care for the other person, care for the well-being of the other person, and conceivably even have more compassion for, for them and their point of view and so on, and be interested in, in finding a common ground. You know, there's certainly likelihood, once you start to be, feel more open towards the other person, there's likelihood of finding at least some little common ground somewhere. And then that can grow, expand, be expanded. And uh, it's just a, a process, you know, that, that opens up in that way. Okay, so let's up the ante. 
literally this week, a friend of mine asked me, would I be willing to talk with someone from KKK, the Ku Klux Klan? I said, absolutely. Why are you even asking me that? And she said, under no conditions would I want to talk to them. And I said, why not? And she said, why would I want to talk to them? Why would I want, I'm not, her exact words as I recall it, I'm not interested in talking to anyone who wants to kill me. Well, in that experience of talking to that person, even if that person remains hostile towards you, you can still feel uh, a great satisfaction in, in bringing your best forward and, and representing, your, representing everything that's great about you, your integrity, your dignity, your knowledge, your, your humanity. You'll, you'll bring all of that to the table and that'll feel great for you. So even if you don't have much influence on the other person, you'll, you'll feel pretty darn good about yourself. Yes, and you're bringing something positive to the world right. instead of all of this animosity. Mm-hmm. You're bringing the positive energy into the world. Right. Well, okay. Um, I don't, oh, I have one more. I just have a note here. I want to read this. I think we've already covered it, but I love this. What gets in our way is the idea that power is inherently manipulative or abusive. And that's part of our resistance to becoming more powerful. So we don't want to be powerful because we regard power as manipulative. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. We will tend to identify with the person that is uh, sort of being subjected to our power and feel somehow or other that they're not liking it, they're feeling oppressed by it, or they're feeling manipulated or controlled by it, which then comes back to our own issues, you know, our own sensitivities. And so, our own, again, our own issues, our own sensitivities make it harder for us to see our way forward and to grow. You know, they, they, they hold us back. So if I disrespect power, how can I allow myself to be powerful? Which means how can I allow myself to bring forth my better self? Is that how that connects? Um, when you say disrespect power, I'm not quite clear what. Okay, you're... if I think power is inherently manipulative or abusive, well, you begin to see that that is. Um, you begin to see the bias that you you bring to that to that sensitivity. You see your own bias. You see why you have that particular uh, take <clears throat> on power. It's based on your own issues you know, your own issues with power, that you yourself uh, can't quite allow yourself to feel it, partly because the inner passivity gets in the way, partly because you're conflicted, partly because you're still somewhat passive to your inner critic. And, and so you don't have the, the and, and you're somewhat disconnected from yourself, so you don't trust yourself more fully to represent power wisely and benevolently. Yes. And so, 
you, you, you lose your footing. You, know, you're, you don't quite know what end is up. You've got too much going on there that you're not seeing. Okay, so I'm thinking of people I know who don't want to feel powerful. And that you're saying they're not giving themselves the credit to be able to use power wisely. Yeah, they're, they're, they're basically somewhat afraid of it. They're afraid of it from others and they're afraid of it in them, allowing it to, to blossom in themselves. Wow. But, and partly there's resistance to the whole process because as you grow, whether it's becoming more powerful or wiser or just happier, it feels as if you're losing all your own identifications, which, are your, which is your own ego sort of sense of self. It's your ego-based sense of self. And it, it feels as if you lose, if you lose that, that you won't even know who you are. Like some mysterious stranger is going to step into your house and take over the place. <laughs> you won't. You won't uh, so there's a resistance to that. It just... It's like you sort of hang on to what is familiar than uh, risk allowing all this big unknown uh, to uh, come into your life. Okay. You know, every time I read your stuff or talk with you, I get new insights. It's like, it's like a bottom with well of pearls of wisdom. So tell us the name of your book, how they can find it, mm -hmm. and how they can reach you. Okay, it's uh, <clears throat> called Our Deadly Flaw. It's uh, subtitle is Healing the Inner Conflict that Cripples Us and Subverts Society. And uh, it's available at Amazon. It's also available through my website, which is whywesuffer.com, which is uh, a website dealing with deaf psychology. And uh, they can they can go there and email me if, if they care to and get information about doing sessions and such. Okay. Uh, Peter, this has been magnificent. I have thank you. I thank you for it. Every time I think of the name of your website, I break into a smile. It's, it's a stroke of genius, whywesuffer.com. I <laughs> think that's just as cool as a uh, name of a website as anything. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for sharing your time and your wisdom with us. It has been uh, just a, a delight for me. And I encourage everybody to go to whywesuffer.com and buy your book. Thank you very much, Jean. I really enjoyed it. That was a fascinating discussion. So here are my takeaways. First, I have a much clearer understanding of the battle between our inner passivity and our inner critic. Our inner critic comes from our parents or whomever told us we weren't good enough. Our inner passivity is the weak part of ourselves that may even try to defend us but because it's the passive part of ourselves, it doesn't do a good job. The battle between our inner critic and our inner passivity affects how we feel about others whom we regard as oppressive or whatever. If we're already beating on ourselves 
telling ourselves we are not worthy or we should feel ashamed. Then when someone comes along saying the same thing, we're already primed to believe it. We may try to defend ourselves or counterattack, which then causes to counterattack us. So then we're locked in the battle of attack, counterattack, defense, counter defense. And that keeps us all stuck. The second takeaway has to do with how to regard bad things happening in the world. Peter says, the more conflicted you are within yourself, the more you will see the world in conflict and the more you will get triggered by all the challenges of life. The question is, what do we do about ourselves or think about ourselves in the face of that reality? The key is that if we don't want that oppressive reality to keep us down or that oppressive person's words to take to heart, then we have to realize those words are not about ourselves. Those words are about that person and their reality. We don't have to take that into ourselves as real. If someone implies that I'm not worthy, I'm this or I'm that because I'm black and I'm female or whatever, those words will hurt me to the extent that I allow them to and feel that they're real. I think a lot of people have a trouble with that idea. They'll think, oh, those words came at you and you should feel badly about that person. Peter says we bring ourselves up. Don't let external forces or people dictate how we feel about ourselves. And look deeply to see why are these words wounding us anyway? What are these words tapping, leading us to believe about ourselves? Why are we vulnerable to those words? The last takeaway was Peter's response when I told him that some people don't want to talk to people they regard as oppressive or whatever because I can't change that person's minds. And you hear that. I can't talk to to that person because I can't change their minds. A friend of mine said she would not talk to the member of the KKK because she can't change their minds and they want to kill her. So why bother? Peter's response was breathtaking. He said, you may not be able to open their minds, but maybe you can open their hearts. And he's right, because I've seen it happen. I've seen people stay stuck in a position and their hearts open. I know it's possible. That's it. Thanks for listening. Let's commit to being willing to open hearts, including our own. If you want the opportunity to discuss this blog or others, consider joining Pathfinders. You can find out how to do so on our website.